You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 94, covering the week of October 16th through October 20th, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you that if you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at Abbeville Institute, on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, and you can also subscribe to our YouTube page. If you don't want to go out and look for those things, you can go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see all of our social media buttons. You'll also find a little button for Amazon Smile. So if you do shop at Amazon, you can make the Abbeville Institute your preferred charity and throw us a few pennies as you order things off of Amazon.com. Also, if you're on our webpage, you go to the top of the page where it says support, click on that little button there. It'll come up with a drop-down menu, and you go to memberships for individuals, and you can donate to our cause. That will help keep the podcast going, the website going, help us deliver high-quality programs uh, for as little as $3 a month if you're a student, or $25 a year, or $5 a month, or $50 a year if you're not a student. You can help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. So go on out there and look at those things. We do appreciate your tax-deductible contributions. Uh, okay, so um, also, if you do like this podcast, please go out to iTunes and leave a review. We don't have a lot of those, but it would be nice if you did uh, to leave a review there on iTunes. You can, you can subscribe to the podcast there as well, uh, so please do that. Okay, so we had a pretty good week at the Institute. Uh, a few things, uh, I think several good articles, but um, the general theme uh, this week, as we've been doing a lot recently, is the distortion of Southern history. And um, in some ways, that took on a different turn in this particular, uh, this particular week. Uh, and we began the week with a piece that's, um, uh, I think, a little different, something that we hadn't really done before. I mean, it's, it's more of a, just a history of, of the war itself, but a diplomatic history. It's uh, written by our resident uh, scholar from Japan, uh, John Marcourt, and it's the, the title of the piece is Russia versus the Confederacy. And uh, it talks about how during the war, the Russian government um, very much took a pro-Union stance. And that was in contrast to, say, the British or the French, who were certainly more interested, at least early on, in, uh, if not uh, de jure, but perhaps de facto recognition of the Confederate government, whereas Russia really wasn't. And uh, I think that uh, Mr. Marcourt does a very nice job in telling this story. Now, one thing after uh, this was published, Clyde Wilson did contact me and said, uh, yeah, but one thing he missed was that the uh, Russian minister to uh, the United States was also very critical of, of Abraham Lincoln, which is also true. Uh, he was. Uh, but I think this particular piece gives you a nice window into uh, why Russia was much more interested in supporting the Union government than the Southern government, um, and uh, you know how this agreement affected the Confederacy. It really didn't, uh, but um, this this very autocratic regime in the in Russia uh, again, an autocratic is to be kind. I mean, this this Russian government in the mid eighteen sixties was extremely autocratic, uh, and how that autocracy. Uh, was much more interested in the strong centralization of the Union than uh, than people in Britain uh, or France who did not have. I mean, well, of course, the French had uh, the 
the Emperor uh, Napoleon III at that point. But uh, you had a much more centralized state in Russia than, for example, that you had in, uh, in uh, England at the time or Great Britain. But this also goes to show, you know, nationalization, centralization was a theme of the 19th century. And it's something that we often miss how this war, the war between the states, the war for southern independence, was part and parcel of a larger perspective in the 19th century. Uh, the French Revolution unleashed nationalism on Europe. And so when Napoleon extended the French Revolution and brought that into places like Prussia and uh, into Italy uh, and into Spain, uh, you started seeing uh, a, a much more of a push for nationalism and also for creating these larger nation-states. Without the Napoleonic Wars, these, the uh, unification of Germany is not possible. Uh, without the Napoleonic Wars, unification of Italy is not possible. And, of course, people like Karl Marx pointed out that uh, Abraham Lincoln was a great centralizer. You also had centralization movements taking place in, in places like Brazil and Argentina. So uh, the, the war between the states and the larger picture was part of these uh, wars of nationalism and of centralization in the 19th century. People tend to think that the nation-state has been around forever, that these I mean, unification of Germany, well, that's Germany's always been unified. No, it hasn't. And that was a relatively recent creation. Germany had a long history of decentralization, something that we often miss. Uh, in fact, the history of Europe uh, for much of the, of the early modern era and then even into the modern era was of a, uh, was a uh, decentralized Germany. And it wasn't until later that you started seeing these much larger and more powerful nation states created uh, in Europe. And so I, I think that you know, when we look at the Abbeville Institute and some of the things we like to do, we like to talk about decentralization. We talk about secession. We talk about uh, nullification. We talk about these particular ideas. And something we miss, and I think it's why it's important to talk about Russia, is these autocracies often supported the strong central state over the renegade states, uh, those who were seeking independence because it fit their view. And I think that's one thing we can gain from our understanding of history in the 19th century is this perspective where the central state is, the, is the, certainly the aggressor in this particular war. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was a war against decentralization, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, and so I think that that's something that's often missed putting it in the larger context of Western civilization at the time, this was a war for centralization. As the Republican Party made clear after the war when they start talking about nationalization and the reduction of the states, and this is a war of centralization to make the central government supreme in all cases. Uh, there's, there's little doubt that was the agenda of the Republican Party and the Reconstruction period in particular when they said things like they're going to forge a new union or remake the union. Uh, they're going to do things like that, and they're going to make it much stronger with a much stronger central authority. So we miss that, and I think that's uh, you know a major a major problem with our understanding of the 19th century because we tend to see things from a very top-down centralized position, and we miss what's going on around the world. So I do like this particular piece for getting into this Alaska and I'm sorry this uh, Russia. He talks about Alaska a little bit, but the Russian situation and how centralization uh, in this autocracy was so important uh, in the in the uh, 19th century. Uh, on uh, Tuesday, we ran a review of uh, Brian uh, Walter Brian Cisco's book. Uh, States' Rights Gifts to South Carolina General of the Civil War. This was actually published in 1991 
but it's still so good. And it's one of these books. We try to do some things in the review that we don't just talk about new books. We do those. Uh, but we also like to talk about some books that are good that everyone should read. Uh, people should know who States Rights Guest is. Uh, they should know uh, this. This uh, any, it, the title of this of this uh, piece is a real personages and not an odd name merely. The fact that he's named States Rights uh, is is of course uh, an a, uh, an interesting uh, talking point. But he was more than that. He was a, he was a good general. Uh, he was killed at the Battle of uh, Franklin. Uh, and uh, but to to talk about these. Uh, these lesser-known figures of the war is important. Um, and, of course, Walter Bryan Sisko is an excellent historian. Uh, he always does a very good job. His War Crimes Against Southern Civilians is one of the best books ever written on the topic. He does a very good job of bringing the story out. And so every now and then, you, I think things, uh, we still have it linked here. You can still go buy it on Amazon. But uh, when you go to some, you might go to a, um, an Abbeville Institute event or maybe an SCV event. And every now and then you'll see somebody selling this particular book. But, of course, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and he also introduces you, as, as Barry Kay points out in this review. It's a very good review by Barry Kay. But as he points out, uh, he also introduces you to people like, uh, you know, James and Mary Chestnut and Robert E. Lee and Beauregard and Benjamin Perry. Uh, and as he says, uh, he found, uh, Kay found Perry interesting. This is his quote, quote, he was a staunch unionist, and, what, and yet when South Carolina seceded, he attached his fortunes to hers. Of note was Cisco's account of Perry's announcement of Lincoln and the federal government for, quote, trying to reverse the principles announced in the American Declaration of Independence and their attempt to subvert the basis of self-government by our subjugation. He further denounced Lincoln's war as, quote, the most diabolical national crime ever committed by civilized and Christian people. Now, this is interesting that he brings that up because everyone tries to say Lincoln was carrying forward the Declaration of Independence and say the Gettysburg Address. But what Perry is saying here is that Lincoln is actually destroying the Declaration of Independence by invading the South and launching an invasion of the South. He's subverting the idea of self-determination, self-government. Isn't that what America was founded on, self-government, self-determination? If we firmly believe in that, for no other reason, you could say that you completely believe the cause of the South is wrong. You could say that, uh, you know, because the South was a slaveholding republic, it was a wrong thing to do to, uh, to, to have a slaveholding republic. However, if we are going to be consistent Americans, then we need to support the idea of self-determination. Whether we like the cause or not, we support self-determination. And... Uh, you know, I, I find it I find it funny when people try to do their verbal gymnastics and they're twisting and turning. It's like they're playing Twister, you know, with with uh, the founding generation. Uh, one of the arguments I just somebody sent me a video the other day from this little twit uh, who did a little video on on uh, on YouTube about the four myths of the war. And so I get these things every now and then. And this little guy uh, gets up there and he says. Uh, well, I don't want to hear anything about Washington and Jefferson. They were bad guy, bad slave owners, and we shouldn't have statues of them either. But, you know, they didn't fight against their country. Wait a second here. Um, in 1775, if we want to say their country, now Jefferson said that Virginia was his country, but take that out. Uh, they were British subjects. So their quote-unquote country, if you follow this line of reasoning, was Great Britain. So they were fighting against their country. In fact, the king and the parliament said that said as much. They're fighting against their country. We would say, no, they're fighting for their country because they're fighting for the United States. Well, what's the difference if Southerners are fighting for the South, which they said was their country because they were now independent? 
They can't get around this. There's no way that you can somehow get around that argument. Uh, they say, well, they were fighting for the nation. Uh, the founding fathers were fighting for the nation, and Southerners were fighting against the nation. No, the founding fathers were actually fighting against their nation in Great Britain, if you want to take the national standpoint. Uh, and they were fighting for independence from Great Britain to form a new country. This is a war of independence, no different than the South, which was fighting against the United States for independence. If you want to say these people were you know, fighting against their nation, the United States, and it's the same exact thing. Uh, and so those, you know, that tw that twister game they like to play, which they get stuck in, uh, doesn't ever work. I mean, it's just complete verbal gymnastics, and it's just so funny to watch them try to work around this. Uh, but it just it fails. Uh, and of course, as we've already talked about on this particular podcast, and um, we've had a, a piece where the British. Uh, Lord Dunmore, which said that the American War for Independence was about slavery. You know, I mean, so those people were fighting for slavery, according to the British. So why are we have statues of them? I mean, if that's what we're going to do, we're going to say all these people were fighting for slavery. The United States was a slaveholding republic uh, in, in 1776. It certainly was. <laughs> it certainly was a slaveholding republic. So if we're going to say that, then uh, then we can't support the American War for Independence because the British outlawed slavery long before the United States did. So maybe we would have been better off saying God saved the queen, or in this case, God saved the king in 1776, than saying, uh, you know, God bless America. Uh, but, I mean, that's that's the problem. They, they can't get around those things. So uh, now, on Wednesday, we ran a very interesting piece by Ryan Walters, who is our book review editor. Uh, and this piece is about Nat Turner. And there was a movie that came out about Nat Turner not long ago entitled Birth of a Nation. And that was done on purpose to con you know, contradict it with the early 20th century uh, D.W. Griffith film Birth of a Nation. But uh, Ryan does a very good job pointing out the problems of supporting Nat Turner. This is interesting because this is not new to say that there, there's some talk about erecting a statue of Nat Turner in Virginia. Uh, and this is not new. There was some talk, I mean, some abolitionists after the war were talking about putting up statues of Nat Turner. Uh, and there's a real problem with that. You know, to, to equate a statue of Nat Turner with a statue of Robert E. Lee is, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're apples and oranges. Uh, Nat Turner was really nothing more than a terrorist. And in fact, the name of this piece is Nat Turner Terrorist. And he goes into graphic detail the things that Nat Turner Rebellion did. Uh, where they killed women and children, I mean, slaughtered them uh, with no no quarter, no mercy. It was simply a slaughter. Same thing with, with John Brown and Pottawatomie Creek. That was a slaughter. And right-thinking people at the time recognized it as that, both north and south. Uh, you know, you had people like, uh, of course, Ralph Waldo Emerson calling, you know, uh, calling John Brown uh, the, the, the reincarnation of Jesus. But how can that be? Uh, last time I checked, uh, neither Jesus nor, I mean, Jesus didn't slaughter anyone. Jesus didn't kill anybody. The only person that died because of Jesus was himself. So saying that uh, Nat Turner, who slaughtered people, or, you know, John Brown, who slaughtered people, were somehow Jesus, that's a distortion of, of the entire, of entire Christian theology. Uh, it just doesn't even work. Uh, these people were violent. And they were violent in ways that, uh, you know, were, were highly destructive. And so I think Ryan does a nice job taking apart the film, uh, which he says is just a disgusting, uh, you know, distortion of, of American history. And then also 
the um, the uh, I think it was a National Geographic uh, documentary on the film, which again he said was just awful. Um, but we shouldn't. I mean, look, I think that uh, there can be a serious discussion about putting up statues to important Black Americans. I think we need that in America. Well, why don't we have a, a, a great statue of Booker T. Washington? Heck, uh, you know, uh, W. E. Du Bois. Uh, uh, if you, if you want to say we need to have, you know, balance in, in who we, who we select or, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas or Thurgood Marshall, or, I mean, you can take your pick of, of important uh, African Americans who deserve, who are the best of, of, if you just want to say it's based on race or the best of their race, you could have that. You, you could, Nat Turner is not one of those people. Uh, he, he's not at all. I mean, Frederick Douglass, why don't we have a statue of Frederick Douglass? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think that these things could be added, and it could add, enhance our understanding of the past and important people in American history. So uh, there's no doubt that uh, this is a conversation that we could have, but not Nat Turner. Uh, I think this is, uh, in, in, it's, it's unfortunate that anyone even bring up Nat Turner as someone who should be celebrated in American history. Uh, there is no way that Nat Turner was anything more than a terrorist. Uh, same thing with John Brown. There should be no statues of John Brown anywhere in America. Uh, just a terrorist. Uh, and so, but we could have statues of people who were important. I mean, heck, uh, you know, we could, we could, t- you could look at all kinds of different uh, African American leaders and talk about, well, we should have a statue of these people. Great. Put them up. At the same time, don't take any others down uh, because that's, again, distorting history. So I like this piece. It's really good. Uh, it's well worth your time. It's a long piece, one of the longer pieces we have on the website, but well worth your time to go on out and look at and uh, and read uh, because, again, Ryan does a very good job, as he always does. He's meticulous in his in his uh, work and explaining the historical inaccuracies. I mean, it's it's he's so good at that. He's done it. He did it um, uh, with, with several films for the website, he does he does very good book reviews, and of course, uh, as we'll see very shortly, he's got his own book coming out on uh, the Chris McDaniel Thad Cochran election in Mississippi, and it's it's so good, uh, and uh, we're we're going to talk about that on the podcast. We have a couple other books uh, that are in the queue too that I think are really good. One of them is uh, Paul Graham's uh, Confederophobia, which uh, is really good through Shotwell Press. We'll have a review up of that. But we've got some things going in. Ryan Walters is doing a great job for us. Uh, and and uh, doing being our book review editor, but also writing excellent pieces like this. Uh, now, uh, on uh, Thursday, we ran a piece by Boyd Cathy, demonizing the South to purify the nation. And this is actually an, an, an attack on Victor Davis Hanson. Now, Victor Davis Hanson uh, writes very good classical histories, uh, military histories. In fact, his Carnage and Culture is a very good book. Uh, but the problem with Victor Davis Hanson is that he needs to stick to doing, as, as even Boyd points out, he says him the same thing. He just writes, these, these are okay, but he needs to stick to that uh, because he does a very bad job if he gets out of that. Um, and as Kathy says, uh, like D'Souza and Goldberg, he must read back into American history an arbitrary template to demonstrate that premise, and that is uh, that uh, the idea that America was built on equality and equal rights. And so he has to read into the Declaration of Independence. This is the, this is the Straussian version, the Jaffaite version of American history. And this is what I was just saying about someone in that book about states' rights gifts. You have two different versions. The Jaffaites would say that Lincoln was espousing 
the, the Declaration of Independence, whereas uh, you, know, this, uh, you had uh, Perry saying, no, no, he's working against the Declaration. Well, which one is it? I think the Perry view, which is the view that people like Bradford and others have had, is the, is the accurate one. Lincoln was not supporting the Declaration. He was supporting uh, the, he was anti-declaration. Uh, he was he was in the position of George the Third, without a doubt, in uh, eighteen sixty and sixty one. Uh, whereas uh, you know, particularly after he took office in eighteen sixty one, uh, he was in, by no means a uh, a staunch supporter of the principle of self determination. If you actually believe that, he would have supported Southern secession. But um, in this particular essay, he, he gets into what he calls Confederate cool, right? And so how uh, Hollywood and music and all these things made the Confederacy cool and how he thinks that that's just a creation of the left. The left was interested in creating Confederate cool and that th- because they're all Democrats. This is such a simplistic, this is the Sousa, this is such a simplistic view of American politics. It almost is laughable, but... Basically, Democrats bad, Republicans good, no matter when you're talking about. Democrats bad, Republicans good. And so they do this stuff to try to counter this narrative that Republicans are all racist, and that's the way it's always been. Uh, and they're very offended by that. And so Hansen makes it a point to always go out and attack the Confederacy. Now, I've talked about this in some pieces that I've written. I think Boyd does a very good job here uh, tearing apart his view of uh, film and how uh, he misses the entire history of, of film in Hollywood. And I, uh, uh, Dr. Kathy is, uh, is very good and very knowledgeable about film, the film industry in, in the uh, mid-20th century. And, uh, I think that, um, you know, he, Hanson doesn't even have a leg to stand on here. He, he does, uh, Kathy does such a good job in taking him down. But uh, his, his argument, as Boyd says, is this. Uh, throughout This is from Boyd. Quote, throughout the 1920s until at least the 1960s and even beyond, Hollywood and the entertainment industry were kind, even partial to the South, and particularly to the Confederacy. But Hollywood and the entertainment industry on the left, therefore, there were obviously certain elements of the Confederacy in the Old South that were consistent with a leftist worldview. This is, this is where, you know, and, and we've, we've talked about this uh, on this podcast before, trying to, make the, trying to make John C. Calhoun a Marxist. Uh, because if you can say the South was somehow on the left, that means you can demonize the South and their own twisted, distorted logic of why we should oppose the South. Uh, so he, he, he says this. This is actually a quote from Hansen. The answer is familiar with the left. The sin is not the crime of romanticizing the Confederacy or turning a blind eye to slavery and secession per se. Instead, what matters more is the ideology of the sinner who commits the thought crime. And how much will it cost the thought police to virtue signal a remedy? Folksy Confederates have their charms for the left. All was forgiven, all was forgiven Senator Robert Byrd, a former Klansman. He transmorgified uh, from a racist retrobate who uttered the N-word on national television to a down-home violinist and liberal icon. A smiling and avernacular Senator Sam Irvin of Watergate fame, who quoted the Constitution with a, with a syrupy drawl, helped bring down Nixon. That heroic service evidently washed away his earlier segregationist sin of helping to write the Southern Manifesto. Uh, one thing that I noticed about this particular piece, and Boy doesn't talk about it, is how uh, Hansen tries to uh, say, well, uh, the things that, that people try to pull out of the Southern tradition now, which is agrarianism, music, food, uh, literature, these type of things, 
You can't do that. You can't separate that stuff from, from slavery and segregation, which is just a stupid argument. Uh, in all of this, uh, as, as uh, Boyd says, you know, getting unraveling all this uh, would take a fat book to get to all this. Of course, I've talked about Sam Irvin in, in my book with uh, Clyde Wilson, Forgotten Conservatives in American History. Um, and C- Irvin was consistent. Uh, going after Richard Nixon was as consistent in his view of the Constitution as anything else he did. Uh, and so, you know, Irvin was a constitutionalist to his core. Uh, so, this, again, this is playing games with R&D. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting how we get to this point where these people are so focused on R&D that they can't get out of their own way when it comes to understanding the value of the Southern tradition and understanding American conservatism. Russell Kirk, which, of course, I'm recording this podcast on the day of Russell Kirk's birthday, October 19th. Russell Kirk... Uh, understood the value of the Confederacy, or actually understood the value of the South. I mean, he was he admired John C. Calhoun and John Randolph. He understood that. He understood what these people actually provided to American conservatism. It's just that modern American conservatives can't seem to figure it out. Uh, and that's that's at their own peril. So many issues we deal with today, if you looked at a Southern solution to those problems, would be would be we'd be better off, but we we forget the South at our own peril. This is we've said this over and over again in this podcast. And the South is America. The traditional South is America. If we forget that South, we lose much of America. And so, uh, when when you try to tear down the South, as as I think Boyd uh, pointed out in the title of the piece, demonizing South to purify the nation, you're not really purifying anything. You're destroying the quote unquote nation by doing that by demonizing the South. Last but not least, we had a piece by uh, Michael Martin, uh, American History Textbooks versus Reality, on Friday. And he talks about how you know, Donald Trump had made a statement about statues and uh, you know, do, do we need to take down Washington or Roosevelt. Uh, and um, you know, this is not a good idea. But he talks about how textbooks have been distorted over time. And he says this, as a teacher, I am seeing more and more students come to me with a distorted view of American history every year. I always ask what students know about slavery and how it ended. I always get the typical Emancipation Proclamation answer. And I shake my head in disbelief. Because, of course, that didn't end slavery at all. He says, in my own classroom, rather than paint a picture of Lincoln as the great emancipator, I present students with primary sources on Lincoln during his 1860 presidential campaign and other addresses, where he explicitly stated he was in favor of white supremacy and no intentions on interfering with slavery. I'll also examine the actual Gettysburg Address and Emancipation Proclamation with them and then let them come to their own determination on Lincoln. He says, where my textbook might skip over the Articles of Confederation entirely, I provide the following sources for my students to interpret. James Winthrop's Letters of of Agrippa, where he explains why large republics cannot work and why confederacies better preserve freedom. Richard Henry Lee's observations leading to a fair examination of the system of government, where he explains how national government can become despotic and unrepresentative and Mercy Otis Warren's observations on the new Constitution, where she provides 18 reasons to reject the Constitution. And so what he's saying here is that we get a very biased and unobjective look at American history and that textbooks have become uh, distorted over time. And this is completely true. Uh, History is memory. And so the fact that uh, some of these textbooks are based on memories, they're selecting different memories and saying this memory is more accurate than this memory, or this memory is ascendant over this memory. But that's not, that's not true. Uh, you have a variety of memories, 
and um, you know, plainly set out for all to see, as another uh, definition of history says. You know, but so this is the important part to get out of uh, something like uh, Martin's piece is that you know it's important for us, it's important for people to listen to this podcast. We're we're expressing a view. Uh, what some might say a myth, well, I would say it's memory. This is the remembered past, a part of, of American history that is being slowly chipped away at uh, in the name of, as uh, Boyd said, of uh, you know purifying the nation. And what does that actually mean? Uh, we're losing because we're chipping away at that other memory of a very vital part of American history, the American story. Uh, traditions have good and bad. And it's important to know both. And I think that what we try to do at the Abbeville Institute is secure the good, what is valuable in the Southern tradition moving forward, which are things like agrarianism and Christianity and uh, uh, things like music and, and, and uh, literature. And we try to, and food, of course, we try to show where those things are valuable in terms of political uh, ideas, decentralization, the founding generation, the original Constitution. The founding generation dom- was dominated by Southerners. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. Uh, you know, you did have Adams and, and Hamilton. But uh, certainly the founding generation uh, had, had, uh, was very influenced by Southern ideas on government and society. So I think that that's one thing we, we forget at our own peril. Uh, that how important the South was, and to, to demonize it takes it takes an important kernel of American history away. In fact, maybe the most important kernel of American history away, and for no good reason, simply to make ourselves feel better. Uh, and that's it. Uh, we can talk about the negatives and say, well, yes, this happened. We we don't want to recreate that. We don't want to do that again. That's not a good thing to do. That wouldn't be valuable moving forward. But yet. Uh, maybe Southern notions of chivalry and uh, the way men act, uh, the way that men interact with other with other people, the way women act and interact with other people. Maybe those things are valuable to move forward. Uh, the ideas of, of uh, again, self-determination, the principle of, of self-government that Lincoln somehow forgot with the war. I mean, these are important things moving forward, and, again, we forget that at our own peril. So I do like this piece by, by uh, Martin. I think it's very good. And I hope you enjoyed um, this particular review of our, of our material at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day. Mm-hmm.